Greetings and shalom. Welcome to the Messianic Walk. I am John McKee, editor of Messianic Apologetics, and I am joined with my co-host, Judah Hamango of Kina T. Letzion. Hi folks, I'm Judah, and yeah, like John said, I, I run Kina T. Letzion, uh, Messianic blog, and I'm the creator of MessianicRadio.com, and recently the creator of MessianicWalk.com, which is uh, a new site specifically for this podcast. And we highly recommend that if you have not already, you go to iTunes, Google, and various other podcast venues to subscribe to this program. Yep. Basically, any place that you listen to podcasts, uh, you should be able to find this show. Uh, but also, if you just go to MessianicWalk.com, there's just links where you can subscribe as well. Excellent. Now, today, we are going to be discussing Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, as many of you should be aware, is the most influential letter ever written in human history. Mm, uh, it mm. has affected not just historical Christian theology, but also the implementation or the application of that theology across many different societies. Uh, Romans isn't just an important letter as we think about the grace of God or concepts like justification or the righteousness of God, mm -hmm. uh, but it also profoundly affects our understanding of human government, yep. our understanding of human psychology, how people handle concepts like sin or wrongdoing. And more than anything else, we see how the good news affected a very significant body or perhaps even bodies of first century believers, Jewish, Greek, and Roman. And so Romans has an influence that extends far, far beyond just theology. Uh, it, it has profoundly affected a Western society and culture for many centuries that on first glance, you think, really? But then when you get into the text of Romans and you really get in, you dig into it and you get in, uh, dig into a history of interpretation of it, uh, you see how profound uh, Paul's letter to the Romans truly is. Yeah. And, you know, you called that out in your book. I think you referred to a few scholars who, who said pretty much that, that this is the most influential letter in ever written. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. And I think you called it out as well that um, some big theological names like Luther and Calvin and others um, drew much of their theology from Romans. So it's big on theology, but it's also um, just had an impact on governments, uh, on Western civilization as a whole. Um, so, and on top of that, if that weren't enough, those two things, I think the third thing too is that Paul is addressing um, a mixed group of Jews and non-Jews, uh, uh, believers at Rome. Uh, and I think that has a lot to speak to the messianic movement. That is also uh, a, such a mix. So um, great letter. And one of the reasons that I, I asked John if we could address this was 
in the last two episodes, our first two episodes, we talked about this gentleman, Jonathan, a friend of mine who left the Torah observant movement, uh, the, the Hebrew roots movement. Um, what he saw as the messianic movement became kind of just a, a mainstream Christian. And he referred to Romans for much of his thinking, um, his changes in theology. He said, ah, oh, well, I went back to Romans, looked at this, and now I have a different take on it. Um, and so I thought it would be good if we could address some big questions in Romans. Um, there's a great deal here, but we're only going to address five today. And who knows, maybe in the future we'll, we'll dig deeper. But um, I think it'll be good to dig into some of these questions that are relevant to Messianic folks. I, I think that Romans is something that many people who encounter it, they have certain expectations, but then when they really get into the text and they try to understand Romans for what it actually meant to its original audience, mm-hmm. then their orientation begins to suddenly change. Mm, One of the things that, that has marked Romans uh, throughout a great deal of its examination up until about the past 50 or 60 years is that it's principally been approached as a theological treatise. Mm. Now, nobody denies the fact that Romans has got theology in it. Certainly. But one of the reasons why there are all these significant explanations in Romans is because Paul probably did not have personal contact with the Romans, unlike some of his other audiences. That's right. He was writing this letter as a sort of self-promotional because Mm. his ministry activity – uh, was shifting from the Eastern Mediterranean to more the Western Mediterranean, and he, and he wanted to use the city of Rome as a hub of operation. Mm. I mean, he had heard of some of these people. They had heard of him, but he wanted them to know what he was all about. So, yeah. you know, if you look at a lot of Romans commentaries, particularly those that are come in a volume one and a volume two, you'll see this really fat, volume one with chapters one through eight and then you'll see a lot skinnier volume two with chapters nine through 16 uh and so you know in in volumes in you know in in volume one chapters one to eight that's when you see a lot of the discussion on you know salvation and redemption and justification all this other stuff but then you get to chap chapters nine through 16 you're like yeah, what do you do with israel and what do you do about this eating and sacred days and so Mm, it's mm. approached very abstract when in fact uh, there were actual circumstances taking place among the Roman believers that needed to be addressed. And so throughout a great deal of certainly Christian history, people have been like, I just don't really quite know what to deal with, what to do with this. Mm. But today in in the Messianic movement, where we actually have congregations of Jewish and non-Jewish people, there are some of these same questions that get raised once again that's uh, and right so, yeah so, so you're find... referring to like nine chapters nine through eleven there where he's he's talking about you know has god's plan failed because uh israel has rejected messiah you know did did god fail what's is, is this a backup plan and and he's addressing that so that's what you're referring to now with with the messianic movement where some of these same questions are being raised again Right. Romans and many of Paul's other letters have this have like on the ground relevancy because we're dealing with these same issues, whereas mm-hmm. in a, in various evangelical venues, they're just not mm-hmm. dealing with those issues. Yeah, I um, see. It's purely theoretical for them. Yeah, I see. Yeah. So today, uh, whether it's Romans or Galatians or some of these other letters, we uh, the 
tried and true method, simple yet complicated, interpret the text for what it meant to its original audience first and deduce mm-hmm. principles for today proves to actually be absolutely imperative. Excellent. Yeah. Hopefully we'll do some of that today. <laughs> so this first one, you, should we just dive in, John? You ready now? We can do that. Cool. Uh, the first one I, I wanted to address and discuss with you, uh, one that is really surprising to me, and I think to a lot of people who read the text, uh, it kind of jumps out. I think it's surprising to Messianic folks. Uh, the the interpretations of this vary uh, quite a bit. We'll discuss that in a sec, but it's Romans 2. In Romans 2, uh, verse 27, Paul talks about this inward Jew, like a true Jewish person is one who is one inwardly. And there's a variation on, on how to interpret this. Here's the, I'm, I'm going to just read the text and then we can kind of discuss from there. Romans 2.27, indeed, the one not circumcised physically who fulfills the Torah. Oh, and and just pause for a sec. I'm reading out of the uh, Tree of Life version. The one who is not circumcised physically, so I think here he's referring to uh, non-Jews, but who fulfills the Torah will judge you who, even with a written code and circumcision, break the Torah. And so here at first he's saying, look, non-Jews who did not have the Torah um, are not circumcised. They'll judge people who are circumcised and have the Torah, but are breaking it. And then he says, uh, he says this, and here's where it starts to get, um, oh, I don't know, um, kind of surprising here. He says, uh, For one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something visible in the flesh. Rather, the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, in spirit, not in letter. And his praise isn't from men, but from God. This is a uh, interesting passage and I know John in in your book on Romans Romans for the practical messianic you gave your interpretation of it and you also referred to a few other messianic leaders how they read this I think you you called out um, you referred to Dan Lancaster DT Lancaster I think Tim Haig as well and there was a variation on how people interpret this because at first glance it almost sounds like hey the true Jews are the ones who are doing the Torah and the Jewish people who aren't doing the Torah aren't true Jews. That's one way to read this. Um, so what are your thoughts, John? How, how do you take this? Okay. Well, it basically comes down to one of two options. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I think, I think it also has to do with how do we read the audience to the Romans? Okay. Because it's fair to say that, the believers in Rome are a mixed community of Jews, Greeks, and Romans. Yep. Okay. However, is it possible that there are some things in Romans that are more applicable to the Jewish believers and some things that are more applicable to the non-Jewish believers? Okay. And I think that if we can recognize that, then we can really not get into some of these unnecessary debates. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you back if you back up to Romans 2.17, okay. uh, Romans 2.17, and I'm reading New American Standard here, says, okay. 
But if you bear the name Jew and actually has that in quotation marks Mm. and rely upon the law and boast in God. So Paul is, is specifically in this vignette of Romans talking to the Jewish believers in Rome. And he's trying to really probe some of their character. Like, okay, uh, is it just enough to recognize that you are a Jewish person, that you have got genetic pedigree going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Mm -hmm. What if being a Jewish person, being circumcised is insufficient? What if there is a non-Jewish person who's doing the significant requirements of the Torah and yet is uncircumcised? What does that mean for Mm -hmm. you? And so I think, I think Paul's argument, you know, he's really focusing on how it's insufficient for Jewish people of the first century to just say, well, we have possession of the Torah. We've been given the right of circumcision. And that means that we're in effectively, you know, Mm -hmm. we're God's own. Well, what if you have uncircumcised people and they're actually doing some of the, performing some of the weightier matters of the Torah, and yet a Jewish person is not doing it. Uh, so ultimately, I, I know that uh, verses 28 and 29 in chapter 2, they come down to, can non-Jewish believers be regarded as spiritual Jews? That's really what a lot of this are. That's the, are yeah, that's or the is the argument really focused on, what does it mean for a Jewish person to truly be a Jew? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it does it is the argument focused more on, okay, great, you have possession of God's law, God's Torah, and you have the right of circumcision, but there's a, there are a few things that are a little more important than that. Not just performing the weightier matters of the Torah, but making sure that your heart is circumcised. And, and for me, in my reading of Romans chapter 2, yes. this vignette is focused more on the first century Jewish believers. So he's now, talking between two is what you're saying that, hey, he's talking about first Jewish believers, but Jewish believers who may um, just rely on their Jewishness rather than um, their relationship with God and saying, I'm right with God by mere you know, merit of being Jewish. Yes, I think that is what he's focused more on. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the issue of non-Jewish believers and their relationship to Israel and their incorporation into Israel's polity. Mm-hmm. That's more in Romans chapter 11 in the, in the analogy of the olive tree. Yes. But if we can recognize, and this again comes from reading Romans as a letter, not just as some theological abstract treatise. It's yes, like okay. there are certain parts of Romans that are focused more on the needs of the Jewish believers in Rome. And then of course, later there are certain parts of Romans that are focused more on the non-Jewish believers in Rome. To me, Romans 2, 17 to 29 is focused more on the character of the Jewish believers in Rome. Uh, and so for me, as a non-Jewish believer in Israel's Messiah, would I consider myself a quote-unquote spiritual Jew? As some people have taken this passage, uh, I do believe that uh, Lancaster is one who has, has taken it in that direction. Yes, um, yeah. I'm, I'm a little more cautious, uh, I'm, I would actually side more with Haig on this and, and some mm. others on this. This is focused more to the Jewish believers in Rome. Uh, and that doesn't all of a sudden mean that I'm not a part of the Commonwealth of Israel, but that's another argument 
uh, in other passages. I think mm-hmm. Paul in, in, in Romans 2, 17 to 29, contextually is focusing more on the spiritual character of the Roman Jewish believers. Jewish. Understood. So he's ex- he's really foc- focusing exclusively on the, on the Jewish believers here, not saying that non-Jews are actually spiritual Jews. This is, I think, an important point, too, because in the Messianic world, you do see folks, uh, and you just mentioned some of them, um, who will take this to say, okay, that means that non-Jews who are doing the requirements of the Torah are, are, are true Jews, um, or could be called spiritual Jews. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an issue. I'm glad we're addressing it. I, th- I think it needs to be. Right. So with that one, yeah, and my thought too, I, the, the, Trouble I have with that one, John, just to speak frankly, is in the preceding verses, he's talking about Gentiles and Jews. Uh, you know, he says, you, you, you mentioned from verse 17, and he, he calls out uh, Jews who are preaching Torah but not keeping it, saying don't steal, but they are stealing, saying don't commit adultery, but they're actually committing adultery and so on. And then he goes, he, he goes on, it seems like he's talking about, you know, circumcised versus uncircumcised. Do you take that, John, to mean Jews and non-Jews when he says circumcised and uncircumcised in verses, say, 25 through 27? Yes, I would, yeah. So if he's talking about Jews and non-Jews there, does that present a problem for what I mean, you just said, hey, contextually speaking, he's talking to just the Jewish believers. But in the preceding verses, he's talking about circumcision and uncircumcision. Do you think that's a problem, or does that still fit in your in your thinking here? I don't think it's an issue because you know one of the things that that really you know I think Paul in Romans is trying to, to hammer hard in these early chapters is yeah. you know Jewish ethnicity and the presumed privileges that come with it. Hmm. You've got a pedigree, not just going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you've got possession of the Torah. You've got things like the rite of circumcision. You've got these other things. And Paul doesn't say that those are wrong. I mean, in in Romans uh, chapter 3 and Mm -hmm. verses 1 and 2, what advantage advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. So he's not saying that possession of these things is wrong. But yeah. he's trying to emphasize it is insufficient to just simply claim possession of these things, but yet be immoral or not mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. live up to what these things actually represent as a proper follower of the God of Israel. Because yeah, one might – go ahead. Because there are going to be uncircumcised pagans who are moral and ethical at times – more so than those who actually possess God's instruction and know the one true God. Mm-hmm. So I think I think Paul. I mean, you know, you know, uh, this, uh, the psychology of the Apostle Paul is he operates uh, in a way that many other contemporaries of his time did not. You know, he wanted people to fully recognize their human limitations, uh, and indeed Romans chapter one goes after uh, the faults of all the pagans. You know, they are, That's right. idolat- yeah, yeah, yeah. they're idolaters, <laughs> yeah. they're sexually immoral, men yeah. are doing it with men and women are doing it with women. I mean, I mean, right. he really goes after the, the, the pagans. So don't think Indeed. that, that Paul 
uh, will only will only goes after Jewish people. Though he goes after the pagans first. That's but right. Paul wants everybody in his letters to come to this realization that who you are is absolutely meaningless without the Messiah event. Mm, I mean, yes, that's that's yes. what he's really trying to hammer hard. Uh, who you are, your human achievements, uh, certainly gets into this in Philippians chapter 3. It's absolutely meaningless without the Messiah event. That is mm. what is to define us. Mm, yeah, so he is centering that on Messiah. Good. I think Romans 2 also, I know we won't spend so much time here. We'll move on shortly. But Romans 2, to me, also really underlines um, how hypocrisy can um, overthrow good intentions, overthrow outward appearances. You know, I think when he talks about, when he critiques, or as you said, as he probes those Jewish believers, you know, saying, um, are you, you're, you're preaching don't steal, are you stealing, that sort of thing. I think it shows as, as something for us too in the messianic movement now with hypocrisy where I think it's very easy to have that, hey, you're Torah observant. You know, I think a lot of people take pride in that that Torah observant um, status. You know, I'm Torah observant, you aren't. And there's like a higher, lower relationship now suddenly. Um, but Paul says, ah, you're preaching the Torah, but are you actually doing it? And if you aren't, if you're actually breaking the Torah... Uh, then, then it's worse for you. And, and as he says, it's like you're not um, a true Jew in that case. Um, that um, even as you mentioned, John, um, a, a, a non-Jew who comes in and who is uh, working out the requirements of the Torah would be considered more righteous than the person who is a hypocrite saying he keeps the Torah but actually isn't. And to be honest, I suspect there's a lot of hypocrisy in the Messianic movement. Right, and and mind you, everybody goes through some phase in their life where they have to resolve certain bad behaviors. Mm. Like I, I remember, um, well, sure. you know, I'm keeping Shabbat, I'm not eating certain things, but, you know, I I went through a phase where I used a lot of profanity, you know, off camera, obviously, but... Uh, <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> uh, off camera, obviously, but... Uh, yeah, I, I would use I would use a lot of profanity only mm-hmm. to be exceeded later by my sister who who joined the United States Navy. Ah, like, oh, that I'm got like, her into it. I'm like, know. I've never heard the F word used in that way before. <laughs> yeah, indeed, for sure. Look, uh, we're all we're all walking with the Lord, uh, hopefully closer and closer as the years go on. Um, we 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 work through those things. I think Paul just. I don't know. It seems like he's saying, look, if you, if you know the Torah or claim to know the Torah or claim to teach the Torah, you better be keeping it because uh, otherwise it turns everything on its head. Uh, let's move on to number two, eh? Uh, and that was my Minnesota accent coming in, my, my A. <laughs> uh, all right. Also in Romans two, there's, as you said, um, if Romans could be split into two volumes here, the first nine, eight, eight chapters, I guess, first eight chapters would be super thick. Uh, there's so much in this first part of Romans. Also in Romans 2, from Romans 2.14, I wanted to talk about the moral law here, John, and get your thoughts on this. Um, Jonathan, in, in previous episodes, um, uh, we discussed this, but Jonathan relied a lot on the moral law to say, hey, look, it's true that Paul tells 
uh, the Roman believers to keep the law, except that law is the moral law. And he relies on that as a foundation for many of his other um, theological changes away from um, the Messianic movement. Um, so here's here's the verse I wanted to, to discuss a little bit. Romans chapter 2, verse 14, Tree of Life version. For when Gentiles who do not have the Torah, when they do by nature the things of the Torah, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the Torah. They show that the work of the Torah is written in their hearts, and their conscience bears witness that their thoughts and, oh, excuse me, and their thoughts switching between accusing them and defending them on the day when God judges the secrets of men according to my good news through Messiah Yeshua. So this, this is, um, a kind of a, a, an unclear, a murky area where he says, hey, these non-Jews don't have the Torah and yet they're doing the things of the Torah. I know in, in Jonathan's move away from the messianic movement, of, as we've discussed in previous episodes, he said, look, Paul in this case isn't talking about Passover or kosher or, you know, feasts or Shabbat because clearly Gentiles don't do that by nature. <laughs> you know, and, and he's got a point there. Uh, they don't do that by nature, but they might be doing uh, some moral things by nature, um, maybe not cheating, uh, not cheating other people in business, uh, swindling people and so on. Um, maybe not committing adultery because they intrinsically know that's wrong or, or mistreating people, murder, rape, and so on. That Intrinsically, those things, a person who comes to faith may know without reading the Torah that those things are wrong and he abstains from those things. And so I think Jonathan's point was, then this must be the moral law. You know, this must be the moral subset of the, of the law of Moses. If the law of Moses is 600 some commands, then maybe the moral law is like a hundred commandments or something. Um, and this is what Paul is talking about here. So I'd like to discuss a little bit about the moral law. First, again, going back to what you said, John, that we should analyze this not as a theological treatise, but rather as uh, the context of writing to a Jewish and Gentile mixed believers um, in the ancient times in Rome. What did Paul mean here in Romans 2.14? Is he talking about the moral law? There are legitimate issues to be raised regarding what uh, Paul communicates here in Romans chapter 2. And I think this is where we have to at least partially interject Hmm. What did Romans mean for the Romans? Yep. Before we deduce principles for the 21st century where we live in a Western world, which hmm. is uh, certainly influenced by a Judeo-Protestant uh, ethic, relatively monotheistic. We are uh, influenced by the Holy Scriptures. We know about events like the exodus of ancient Israel and yes. that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Here, Romans 2.14 specifically says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts 
alternately accusing or else defending them. And then this is the key verse in verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Messiah Yeshua. So there are secrets somehow involved. Mm. But this concerns people who do not have the Torah, who do not have access to it, who don't have access to the record of the Holy Scriptures. So basically, you're deal in, in the context of the Romans, you'd be dealing with pagan Greeks, pagan Romans. And yeah. guess what? In spite of their paganness, they are human beings made in God's image. In, they have a conscience, and sometimes they actually get a few things right. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they wouldn't steal. They'd be honest in their business practices. Yep. Uh, they would try to encourage a society of peace and a society where people are trying to improve themselves, these sorts of things. Uh, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that these are a, a feature of a lot of customary Greco-Roman uh, philosophy. And they would say, hey, husbands, you need to be loyal to your wives. You don't need to go off and have all these affairs. We need to mm-hmm. respect the value of human life. We don't need a society with murder or exposure, which was the ancient form of abortion. Uh, uh, right, yeah. you know, Paul is dealing with the people who are actually performing some of the significant matters of Torah without even having access to it or knowledge of it at all. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're not going to be keeping you know specific things like the Passover, which arise from having possession of the Torah and mm-hmm. an understanding of its historical record and, and for what it meant to ancient Israel. Uh, so, you know, as human beings made in God's image, we have a conscious. There are certain things impressed upon us regarding what is right and what is wrong. Like everyone has impressed upon their conscience that murder is wrong. Stealing mm-hmm. is wrong. Lying is wrong. Yes, those are moral or those are ethical things, but we we know that they are wrong because they are a part of who we are as humans made in God's image. Mm. And there are people who, again, they don't have access to God's Torah as the case of most first century Greeks and Romans, yet they actually get a few things right. And people who in the first century, like many Jewish people had access to God's Torah. And in spite of that, got a few things wrong. So again, yeah. you know, you know, Paul comes from the perspective of he's trying to, you know, really get everyone, regardless of who they are, to understand that they're human, they have limitations, and ultimately we know how Messiah-centric his letters are. This is why we all need to focus our attention on that Messiah event, because we can't mm-hmm. claim special privileges. Well, I, well, you know, we've had the Torah from the very beginning, or you know, well, wait a second, we've done all these good things for the state here. It doesn't matter. What yeah. matters is who you are in relationship to uh, this Messiah who has come and been sacrificed for our sins. You mentioned that um, some of these non-Jews who had come in, they get some things right because they're, they're a human being. Do you think, my first question with this is, is this just something... Is this evidence of God that there is imprinted on nearly every human being um, this basic morality, you know, that, hey, cruelty, murder, and so on is wrong? Is this is this something that all humans have, and, and that's just part of what we received being created in God's image? 
Well, I certainly believe so. Okay. My second question then is, given that they have this basic morality, and I'm going to tie this to what Jonathan said. So given that virtually all people have that basic morality imprinted uh, by God, we're humans, we have the intelligence, rationality, we understand some things are wrong intrinsically. Jonathan took that and he said, well, that's, that's the requirement of Gentiles, that, that basic morality. And I, 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 I said my response, and I, I'd be curious what you think of, of this if I was way off or maybe it's accurate. Hopefully it is. <laughs> uh, as I said, well, hold on. I think Jonathan's conflating two things here. One is that basic morality that's imprinted on human beings. And Jonathan is conflating that with, this is the totality of what God requires of Gentiles is this basic morality. And so I, I suspected that's the problem here is for, for Jonathan, he took that as saying, Hey, that they by nature do the things of the Torah. That may be the case when they come to faith, but I don't think it's what God requires for the totality of their lives. So that was my response to Jonathan. What do you, what do you think about that? Is is that what's being addressed here? Um, I think I think what's being addressed here, specifically regarding these pagans who actually find themselves doing things of Torah, yes. it's, it, it's a result of them being humans made in God's image. Mm-hmm. At the mm-hmm. same time, for the non-Jewish believers who came to faith, uh, actually some of the requirements that they, the non-negotiable entry requirements of the apostolic decree, uh, they dealt with, you know, abstaining from meat sacrificed and from blood. That's that's in more of this gray zone. I mean, was it imprinted (laughs) upon the conscious or not? I mean, two of the four requirements deal with eating. That's Uh, right. And so that actually would definitely require, okay, what does the Torah actually say about these instructions? That's Uh, And then, of course, you know, some of these other things like idolatry. Okay, one God, you know, what does that mean? You know, and... uh, you know, abstinence from fornication. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, okay, uh, that means that, you know, no polygamy, or does that mean no uh, mistresses, or does that mean no, mm-hmm. I mean, does that mean no uh, prostitutes? I mean, what does that mean? So mm-hmm. whatever, I mean, yes, we have a basic morality implanted upon the conscious, but that doesn't, that cannot be used as an excuse not to study Holy Scripture. Especially yeah. mm-hmm. when you make a profession of faith in Israel's Messiah, yes. you know that there are the the Holy Scriptures. You know that regardless of who is supposed to do what, you're still supposed to study the Bible, mm-hmm. and that's supposed to give you an advantage over the the heathen at large. I mean, I'm, yes. I'm sorry, <laughs> yes. um, you know, and and even today, you know, people who think that. You know, matters like kosher or circumcision, they've been abolished. They were for a previous time. They think the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, whatever it was. They mm-hmm. still know they have to study the Old Testament for mm-hmm. understanding God's workings in history. Like, okay, I'm going to set up a business. Well, what did God require back then? And how do I, do, you know, have a good, you know, ethical business today? Or, yes. or what mm-hmm. do I do uh, regarding my sexual ethics? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, can I, you know, look at porn on the side and get away with it. I mean, mm. these are the kinds of things that, that this is why we turn to the Holy Scriptures. You know, 
Here, right, Paul yeah. is trying to highlight how those who do not have the Torah, so pagans, they don't have access to the scriptures yeah. of Israel, they, they, they can, as unlikely as it may seem from time to time, they can actually do some of the significant matters of the Torah, and those who have access to it, they've had access to it from the day of their birth, yeah. they can be caught violating it. Yeah, indeed. Good. I, I really like too how you, how you, you tied that to, to Acts 15 in particular, I suppose. Um, but in that case, the, the basic requirements of these non-Jews who are turning to God included some food laws that would not have been done, uh, from imprint on the conscious. That, that basic morality, they wouldn't have known like, oh, you know, we, we can't eat meat sacrificed to idols or can't drink blood. That's not um, that moral law. I can't imagine that would be considered moral law. So that that's good. So I think then I, I'm, I'm still sticking to my guns here then about, I think Jonathan maybe was conflating two things uh, with regards to here are this basic morality imprinted on non-Jews and, and printed on every person. And what is God's requirements for, for people? Those are two separate things and hopefully it progresses one into the other. Um, good, good. Uh, let's move on to number three. What does it mean to be released from the Torah? Uh, in Romans seven, uh, I, I'm curious too, uh, John, when I was teaching on Romans at my congregation in Romans seven and eight, there's some good statements about the Torah, but there's also some really tough statements about the Torah. i of all the chapters I really study deeply, these these hit the most difficult passages for, for Torah observant or Torah pursuant believers, including this one. Here it is from Romans 7, verse 3. Uh, excuse me, 7, uh, verse 6. Tree of Life version. But now we have been released from the Torah, having died to what confined us, so that we serve in a new way of the Ruach, the Spirit, and not in the old way of the letter. And uh, just to give some context, in the previous verses, Paul talks about from the Torah, if a spouse died, then the living spouse, uh, the widow or widower, is then is freed from the law about adultery, I think he, he, he speaks of. And then he comes to this saying that we've been released from the law, having died to what confined us. What are your thoughts about this verse? Okay, well, I have two. I have two immediate things that come to my mind. Okay. Number one, I remember uh, when I was at Asbury Theological Seminary, and I t- had to take two classes on Romans because I failed one and had to retake it again. No, actually, a- actually, it was much more. I took Romans uh, at the six hundred level, and then I had to take another class at the seven hundred level, and it was either mm. we're going to get this thing. This, this degree over with now, we're going to wait another six months. So it's like, okay, we'll do another class on Romans. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. But, all in right. The, but in the second class on Romans, um, you know, I, I took a lot of notes in, in, in the lecture periods and some of them were what the instructor, the professor was saying, but there were also notes that I took regarding some of the conclusions that various students were coming to. Ah, okay. And so one of the things that, you know, is very common when people encounter Romans chapter 7 uh, and they see Romans 7, 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. They, they assume that, well, we were once 
married to the Torah, the law of Moses, that we're supposed to be dead to that, and we're now supposed to be married to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And, okay, I mean, that's a conclusion that many people have come to, not all. Uh, but, you know, in a class, in an exegesis class, you know, you are encouraged to, you know, read the text very closely because sure. it's in those verses that you are, are seemingly going to gloss over. That's where you the most find. important information mm. is going to be found. Okay, uh, okay. And so people would be reading from Romans, you know, 7, you know, I am speaking to those who know the law, and then they just, like, move on. And it's mm. like, don't you understand that statement right there? I'm speaking to those of you who know the law, know the Torah. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to – there's some kind of background in the Torah of Moses that is to inform us as to what this passage actually means. Mm. And yes, okay. Now, my second point is you look at a history of Protestant interpretations of Romans chapter 7, many are not agreed that certainly the Torah as a whole is what has been quote-unquote abolished here. Rather, Mm -hmm. there's something much more specific or much more focused which is in view. So you can't take Romans 7 and say, for example, well, the Ten Commandments are no longer important. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you know uh, the sexual ethics of the Torah are no longer important, or business practices are no longer important. No, there, mm-hmm. there is a much more targeted what believers have been released from. Okay. And, and actually, uh, verse 2 tells you what it is. The married woman is bound by law to her husband while she, he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of discussion about, okay, so the Torah has a lot of instructions regarding marriage. And, uh, you know, later in verse three, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So with the law of the husband, i.e. the law of marriage in view, if a woman mm. marries another man while her husband is alive, well, guess what? She's an adulteress, and she's committed what's called polyandry, uh, mm-hmm. having two husbands, which is, which is not yes. good. But if her husband dies... She is released from the Torah concerning marriage in this regard, and she is free to join to another. So there is something regarding the Torah that believers have been freed from in order to be fully joined to the Messiah. And actually, Romans 7 verse 4 tells us very clearly what this is. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Messiah, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. So mm-hmm. actually, the uh, you know Protestant interpreters, uh, you know, going back to you know, John Calvin and others in the Reformation, who yes. believe who do who did not come to the conclusion that the Torah as a whole is something that believers have been released from, they took you've been made to die to the law through the body of Messiah. They interpreted that as meaning Yeshua's sacrifice on the tree yes atoning for human sin taking upon himself the condemnation pronounced upon lawbreakers in the Torah ah. that believers have been set free from the Torah in that regard so 
believers mm. are set free from the condemnation of the Torah by the work of the Messiah. So it's not the Torah as a whole which believers have been released from. It's rather a very you know limited sector, just like the law of marriage, particularly how if a woman tries to marry someone else while her husband is still alive, she would be condemned. So believers, because of the Messiah event, they've mm-hmm. been released from the Torah in terms of its condemnation so they can be fully joined to him. And, of course, later you get down to Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, which are, are some of my, like, you know, of the top five passages, you know, they're one of my top five favorite Bible passages. Um, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those mm-hmm. who are in Messiah Yeshua. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Verse yes. 3, for what the law could not do, weak <clears throat> as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Um, mm. And many commentators have connected that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us to the new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Ah, interesting. And even yes. Matthew 5. So, so we're not talking about some wide-scale abandonment of the Torah here. We're talking instead of being released from its condemnation. That is what is in view here. And and indeed, one of the reasons why people like me write these big fat books <laughs> on these topics is so that we as messianics can know that, okay, there are actually Christian interpreters who have preceded us in faith who have seen some of this as well. We're not yeah. just off our rocker. We're not just making this up. We're joining <laughs> yes, in yes. a con we're joining in conversations that have actually already been taking place. And if we can recognize that, then we can say, hey, we're just continuing in what various others have said. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the key again for Romans seven I speak to those who know the law. Know yes. a few things about God's Torah before you start interpreting or applying it. I remember years ago when I was a so- well, I'm sorry, I was a junior in college, and my roommate was a pastor's kid. And he was a nice guy, you know. Okay. Um, my 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 sophomore year, I had a roommate named Mark. My junior year, I had a roommate named Luke. Still wait, Matthew never showed How up. You but, know, but, like, <laughs> yeah. but, it was, but um. Uh, very nice guy, you know, son of a pastor, but he always said things like, well, doesn't the law of Moses say we're supposed to have two refrigerators? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, <laughs> you know, been, it's, it's like, some it's things like, there, but it's yeah. like, wait a second. I can just see, and my response is, I can just see the Israelites taking the refrigerators all around the desert. They would have the loved desert. the refrigerator. <laughs> I mean, I can just see them pulling them all around the desert. This is so great. Now, obviously, yeah, that they have is the two, though, the meat and the milk, and yeah. <laughs> now, that is obviously an interpretation of, you know, these various instructions regarding meat and dairy. Yeah. But see, that just goes to show you that a lot of people have various misconceptions about the Torah. So you're actually going to be able to read Leviticus and see the word refrigerator. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, they, 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 they assume things about God's Torah and they don't even know anything about it. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that I that's think is, is very, very sad. And the, of course, there are scores of instruction regarding marriage, regarding sexuality that provide some kind of a background behind just these simple statements in Romans 7. 
Um, mm. And it's not as though in being released from the law concerning the husband or the law of marriage that all of a sudden all of the Torah's code the woman was released from. Right. And, I, and yeah. so I think we have to recognize mm. that something specific is in view here. And indeed, you know, uh, so many of the misunderstandings we have come down to, we don't want to take the time and sort through some details. Uh, yeah, we want to just do easy blanket stuff without getting into the, um, yeah, the, the finer details. Good. Uh, I think, too, there, there's good evidence for what you said there. We're saying um, that dying to the Torah speaks to no longer being under the condemnation. You, you mentioned that um, in the next chapter, uh, just a few paragraphs down, we have uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Messiah. Uh, also, in, in chapter 7, verse 5, I think there's more evidence, too. He says, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions that came through the Torah were working in our body parts, bearing fruit for death. So there also he's calling out that sin that leads to condemnation, that leads to death. Um, so I, I, I think that's that's good. And as you pointed out, to say it applies to all the Torah that, you know, now we're free from the whole Torah, that's an extrapolation beyond the text itself. The text doesn't actually say that. Um, I also wanted to just call out, John, you mentioned that, hey, we can continue in the vein of Christian scholars who who have interpreted this to say this doesn't mean the whole Torah is done away with. Uh, this is important because what one of Jonathan's points that he had raised was, hey, look, in the Messianic movement, so much of scholarship is derided. Uh, and, and this is a great example of why it shouldn't be derided. Like here you can say, ah, let's look to scholarship of the past, of great believers, of great leaders, of great scholars in, in the Christian world who have interpreted this in a, um, what you might frame as a Torah positive way, not um, dismissing the whole Torah. So just wanted to add a comment there. No, uh, okay. and I, and yeah, I have to add this. I have to add this mm. because, yes. you know, for a great deal of my earlier ministry, I would say, yes. you know, yes. in the mid to late 2000 aughts and into the early 2010s, um, you know, I was, you know, I think rightfully so because some of that was in the immediate wake of me attending seminary, mm-hmm. wanting to like, as much common ground as we can establish with evangelicalism, let's do so. Yes. Let's not make enemies. Mm. We don't have to, yep. uh, because it's not as though, you know, we need to read the Bible isolated, you know, because even the lexicons we access, most of them are produced by who? Academic Christians. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, over the past few years, um, particularly over the past three to four years, as I become more, and more engaged with um, the Jewish academic tradition. This isn't a Jewish way of doing things either. Um, uh, I I recently uh, took a class through the IMCS uh, by Rabitzin, Rachel Wolf, on, you know, understanding Jewish concepts of God throughout history. And things really, uh, you know, what what we are perhaps impacted more, even more so than, the academic Protestant tradition is the academic Jewish tradition. And around uh, the early 19th century, um, subsequent to the Napoleonic Wars, uh, which, okay, they were complicated, but Jew- Jewish people in Central and Eastern Europe began being emancipated 
So they were no longer just part of their own little tiny communities here or there. Okay. They started becoming citizens of these different nation states, you know, something which had actually been spearheaded by the American Revolution. Mm. And so what it meant is that, you know, Jewish people who had largely been constrained to their individual communities uh, and, you know, the highest you got in the Jewish community, you became a rabbi and you became a scholar in Torah and Talmud and these kinds of disciplines. All mm. of a sudden they get to go do what? They get to go join wider society and join mm. the academic elite. Oh, and, in, and in the 19th century, you know, mm-hmm. if you wanted a if you wanted a highbrow education, what did you do? You went to Germany and you went to these very, you know, rigorous, Critical. you know, yeah. schools. And so mm-hmm. the sons and the grandsons of some of these prominent rabbis who were already geniuses in Torah and Talmud and, and these kind of things, they got mm-hmm. a classical German education. Mm-hmm. And they got trained in disciplines like uh not just you know, history and philosophy and the classics and art, but even more so disciplines like mathematics and chemistry and physics and astronomy and zoology. Uh, and so I've noticed that, I mean, the Messianic community, it has a, it has a, it tends to have hostility toward, you know, academic Protestantism, but it kind of works against its own Jewish background as mm-hmm. well. Because, mm, because actually, the Jewish community expects something even more rigorous. Yeah, uh, and we don't tend to to emphasize that sufficiently enough. Um, and I've said this on on other uh, broadcasts our ministry has released, because a lot of people will will turn to First Corinthians eleven, where Paul says, you know, Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And so, and it's actually, not the case now. There's a yeah. huge number of people in the Messianic movement. Who are, you know, mm-hmm. they're very charismatic and look, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you do as well. Yes. So they say, we just need more signs and wonders and we'll attract our people into this. And I'm like, well, maybe in the first century that was the case, but yeah. what does that mean for the 21st century? See, Western people expect wisdom. And if Western people expect wisdom, actually in the 21st century, Jews expect even more wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of these things like with Romans, you know, it, they're actually some of the more easy issues that we're having to work through. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I know we talked a, a bit too in, I think, episode one about, I think it was episode one about the need for scholarship, uh, and how messianic folks, uh, need to change our hearts in this regard. I think a lot of folks are just anti-scholarship, anti, and, and, kind of an extension of that is like anti-science, anti-medicine. And I think um, that hurts our credibility, uh, as you mentioned, John, with Jewish people, but also just our credibility to the world. Um, we, we need to have that, uh, that growth and that wisdom. Let's move on. Uh, question four of five. This one pertains to coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. All right. Probably good. I, I raised the issue about modern <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, right, yeah, I guess that flows into this one. Okay, here's the deal. So in Romans 13, Paul talks about submitting to authorities, and I wanted to talk about how that can or should it even apply to now in the coronavirus era when authorities are giving all kinds of direction that I think a lot of religious people are feeling uh, constrained by. I know there's a 
big dispute going on in New York right now where uh, Governor Cuomo, I think it is, uh, is is cracking down on Orthodox Jewish uh, meetings together because they're kind of bucking the no mask thing. And there's all there's all sorts of disputes about this. So let me read the text and then we can kind of discuss further. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person submit himself to governing authorities, for there is no authority except authority from God. And those that exist are put in place by God. So whoever opposes the authority has resisted God's direction, and those who have resisted will bring judgment on themselves. In the context of coronavirus that's going on now, um, as we're recording, it's like, I don't know how it is there, John, but here churches and congregations are still locked down quite heavily. Um, many of the messianic congregations around me, in fact, all the congregations within like an hour of me aren't opened because of coronavirus and, and the restrictions uh, placed in the state of Washington where I'm at. Um, at. Some churches are beginning to open limited, that sort of thing, but there's a lot, there's a big crackdown and we're seeing disputes about this all over the place. In fact, in the news recently, John MacArthur uh, in California, a pretty well-known uh, evangelical uh, preacher. Um, he bucked government authority um, to, in, in California, they said you can't have meetings of, you know, more than X number of people. He did, and he did it deliberately and said, no, you know, uh, kind of gave him the, gave the government the screw you speech, and we're going to do it anyway. And uh, they took him to court, and he, I, I understand MacArthur won in court, at least initially, I think it's still being disputed, but there's a, I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of dispute about this, submitting to government authorities. How should we now, uh, especially in the coronavirus era right now, how should we take this? Should we still submit to government authorities, even though sometimes it feels like it's infringing on our, our right to assemble and worship together? What are your thoughts, John? I think that, I mean, Romans chapter 13, regardless of how people take the text. Yes, does demonstrate how Romans is a very influential letter throughout human history. Uh-huh. So, when, you know, I mean, understand how, okay, there's some kind of background regarding what Paul says here that specifically applied to the Roman believers. Okay, and I'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. Right. However, right. if you were, you know, one of these Protestant reformers, who, you know, it's illegal to possess the Holy Scriptures in certain countries. Mm -hmm, you know, you could mm -hmm. be burned at the stake. You could be imprisoned. Yeah. Um, you know, half the population can't even read. Um, you know, all these different factors. You're coming out of the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You know, Roman Catholicism doesn't want the people to get an education. Yeah. Um, and you understand, you can understand at least how in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, you saw various, you know, countries, particularly in Western Europe, they start making sure people learn how to read and write. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is where the whole Protestant work ethic comes from. Uh, you know, very, very important influence of chapter 13 on things that a lot of us take for granted today, uh, particularly okay. in the West. But I have to say that, you know, Romans, 13, as it involves obeying the civil powers, uh, and I was taught this in seminary, and there's adequate, you know, evidence from ancient history that 
it probably involved some kind of tax issues in the oh. in the first century Roman Jewish community, uh, okay. where there were probably some disagreement between the Roman state and the Jewish community in Rome, and they weren't act, actually paying their taxes, you know, for some of the basic civil services. Uh, mm-hmm. And Paul did not want the believers getting caught up in this. They were going to get caught up in enough, but they didn't want to, they didn't need to get caught up into this. I see. Now the the mm-hmm. main argument you know, throughout history regarding Romans chapter 13 is Paul encourages obedience to the government, but does he encourage obedience to the government at the sake of God's word and God's ways? Mm-hmm. That's really, that's really the question. And on the whole, believers have correctly answered, no, we're not supposed to just blindly follow the government in all things. It's pretty clear. Uh, yeah. We would add up. We'd end up in a an absurd uh, uh, outcome if if that wasn't the case. So yeah, right. I think so, we're all on board about that. So, yep. so for example, uh, you know, countries where declaring the good news or distributing Bibles is illegal. Well, of course, you disobey the government. Yes. Um, standing against immoral dictators. You know, people like, uh, I remember one commentary I accessed and went through some of the dictators of the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, yes. People like Idi Amin in mm. um, Uganda oh, and okay. uh, uh, Bota in South Africa. And I think mm. even Saddam Hussein was mentioned. You know, people like that. Yep. Um, today, people, I'm not, not to push the envelope too far, but people like President Xi of, of China could be mm-hmm. mentioned. I mean, these are the kinds of mm-hmm. people you'd say, you know, if they make declaration of the good news or distribution of Bibles illegal, well, obviously we're to go with God and not with the Holy Scriptures. Yes. But yes. the thing about coronavirus, it's like, well, okay. Uh, I mean, this is the, this is the recent controversy. And of course, there are a lot of questions that will, the truth will always come out. You know, where'd this thing come from? Was it underdone bat soup? Was it something that got weaponized by the Chinese? Sure. You know, was it, is it something that nefarious powers are taking advantage of? We just won't know. But what mm-hmm. we do know is that a lot of people have gotten sick. I know yes. people who have gotten sick. You know people who have gotten sick. Someone the president was, got sick this week. Yeah, right? I know. The president got sick. <laughs> Excuse me. Prime Minister Boris Johnson got sick. That's right. Um, all the a lot of people have got sick. Some people, uh, I don't know directly anyone who has died. It seems I do. To me, it seems to me, and this is just me, um, mm-hmm. that a lot of the people who have died from COVID already had pre-existing health problems, and this just yep. kind of pushed it over the edge. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of questions regarding how serious is COVID. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what we also know, and I think this is something that has to also be taken into consideration, this is one of these aspects of ministry and having, you know, like a, a public facility where people are going to show up that many are not aware of. We live in an increasingly litigious society. Yeah. So think about this, for example. COVID is out there. You know, this disease is out there. How bad or, or not so bad it is. That's being that that still is going to be debated under dispute. Okay. However, um, this past year, all the Messianic conferences got canceled mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. guess what? The hotels and the various venues, you know, if somebody gets sick and they want to sue us, you know, who gets sued? Uh-huh. Uh, the host mm-hmm. of the event or the 
venue, the hotel, the conference center, who gets sued, whose insurance is going to cover this. Um, I mean, yes. you think this is funny, but it, this is real. And I, I kind of laugh a little bit because uh, just to give a personal example of that, um, just the other week, it was my wife and I's anniversary. We went to this little spa place where we got pedicures and they give you a foot massage, all this stuff, right? Before we could go in, you had to be wearing a mask the whole time. You had to sign a waiver saying that if you get sick with coronavirus, that we are waived from, you know, being sued. And even that might be on shaky ground. So this, yeah, what you're saying is absolutely real. Right. Like, like I already knew, I mean, I already knew a couple of years ago yeah. when we would go exhibit at the Messiah conference in Grantham, Pennsylvania for a week, you know, yeah. a lot of the exhibitors have candy on their tables. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's pretty common. Sure. Um, and we had to move from having M&Ms to having pre-wrapped candy, you know, you know, like wrapped candy. Uh, because guess what? How many people, I'm sorry, go to the men's room and don't wash <laughs> don't their hands? Wash. I mean, who's going to yeah, get sick? I suppose so, yeah. I mean, that was, that was before any of this. Mm-hmm. So, so now, you know, you've got, you know, churches, you've got synagogues, you've got these, you know, schools, you've got these public arenas. And if somebody gets sick, and they say, hey, um, I've got some medical bills, and you've got insurance. Um, I want, I don't know, $250,000 from you. I mean, these are the kinds of liabilities that, you know, big groups have to take into consideration. Uh, Interesting. I've, indeed, I've seen, yeah. I've had things sent to me regarding these are all the things that people in churches have to be aware of in the, once this coronavirus thing, you know, passes over, like, you need to be very cautious of the common coffee pot you mm. know maybe you need a keurig now because you know it's all contained yeah um, mm. wow you know pot luck or the own egg what are you gonna oh, wow. do you don't yeah. know where the food yeah. comes from i mean yeah. somebody mm. gets sick you know and and i and i and i you you almost wonder you know how much insurance does your congregation have mm-hmm. you know five million dollars Ten million dollars. You think this is all funny, but uh, and it's not just. It's Mm. obviously not just churches or synagogues. I mean, the airlines Mm. are affected by this. Restaurants Mm. are affected. They're going to be affected far more. But these are the kinds of factors that people in the West have to take into consideration. If we open our doors during this pandemic and somebody gets sick, are we going to get? Are we going to be sued for for this? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Because. You know, and, and, and I think that, you know, as uncomfortable and as inconvenient as that is, I think a lot of places are just like, hey, we'll just go with live stream. It's so much easier now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and but, a lot of us, a lot of us, you know, like I have not been worried about getting sick at all myself. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not worried. I personally am not worried about getting coronavirus, okay. but I don't want to be a carrier and infect my 93 year old grandmother or somebody else's grandmother. Yeah. who is already, you know, on shaky ground health-wise. And, exactly. Then it's more serious for them, yeah. And, you know, it, it, yeah, we just don't want to, you know, see them, their lives, you know, terminate prematurely. Because um, of us or, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I the coronavirus, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it is a prompt, hopefully, as we all, you know, practice social distancing and we – and we realize uh, that, you know, well, you know, if you get the vaccine, that's going to be registered on your smartphone. And then the the 
the the government can track where you are. I mean, I mean, those are it's those, Bill Gates who's going to track you. Not I mean, the those government. are those are things that I'm admittedly concerned about. And mm. uh, you know, I I have to I have to admit I I you know because I, I do watch news particularly from you know China and India yes. that uh, you know if if China is you know, I'm speaking theoretically, if they're yeah. partially responsible for this. And, you know, one of the mm-hmm. theories is that, well, you know, China would release this virus and then everybody would turn to China for the cure and it would help China. Well, it's totally backfired on China completely. Yeah. Right, um, yeah, yeah. Because uh, actually, you know, people realize that, that China is a much greater threat than Russia will ever be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> but, so, John, uh, go ahead. But yeah, but, but yeah, so the coronavirus, you know, concern regarding, you know, the lockdowns and the quarantines. Yes. I, I, I think some of them are a little too overblown because, you know, I know relatives right now sure. who haven't left, who really have not left their house since March. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not that scared, but in terms of holding religious services and public, you know, services, and mind mm-hmm. you, I live in Texas, which is probably the most, one of the most independent states in the union. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's own country so, almost. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, you know, a lot of people, you know, they see these regulations. They're like, what the hell is this? I mean, we're not, we don't care about mm-hmm. this. Um, but, but, but for, you know, a, a church, for these different venues holding these large public functions, it ultimately comes down to, well, if somebody gets sick and we get sued, are we going to be able to cover the liability for this? Yeah. So you're basically saying, look, because it's increasingly litigious in our society, that's exacerbated the, um, the trouble with coronavirus and maybe, maybe made things a little worse for congregations and other, other places because they're concerned about being sued. What would you say to the person, and I'm asking this for a real reason, I have a lot of family, friends, post things on Facebook, social media, that they just feel that all of this is government intrusion into their lives. And they, I could respond and say, hey, Romans 13 says to submit yourself to the governing authorities, but I feel that it's it's a very murky area. What would you say to the person who feels that all of these lockdowns, given what you just said about the litigious society, that it's an that as they see it, it's an infringement on their religious liberties? Are, it, it, does Romans thirteen play a role here, or is it in fact we've crossed over into um, this is the government uh, going too far? Well. One of the things we do have to keep in mind here is, as of today, mm-hmm. being a believer in Israel's Messiah has not yes. b- become illegal as a yes. consequence of mm-hmm. the coronavirus scare. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. there are places, again, they, they're prohibiting religious services. There are ways around it. I know that yep. some of the uh, Messianic Jewish congregations in California, they're holding their services outside right now. Yeah, yeah. I know some friends uh, in Oregon who are doing the same. Yep. Right. I know that uh that uh you know two of the prominent MJA congregations in in Southern California ha- you know they held their high holidays outside. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, yep. So and they're holding their Shabbat services outside or they are 
holding the main service inside, but they're encouraging people to come to the service and be outside with their laptops or their, you know, phones and all that yep. and, and watch yep. it on stream so there can be some social interaction. Yeah. So I think we're much more at the, well, how do we get around certain things phase? Mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. we're at this, you know, our faith is going to become illegal as a consequence of this. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, look, where there's smoke, there's fire. And yeah. and hopefully God is getting the attention of people that things have changed. Um, mm-hmm. you know, yes, I, I, I don't necessarily want to fly on an airplane with, with the mm-hmm. mask. I have yeah. no desire for that. I would rather <laughs> get in a car and drive. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, lives in a state where there are much less restrictions than, than other states. Uh, but still, you know, you feel it and, you know, you're like, you know, do I really need to go to that place? Do I really need to go to that, you know, restaurant? I mean, I can't go to the movies right now. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so, so our lives have changed as a result of this. Uh, but I, I think if you're going to defy coronavirus regulations, you better have a really good reason for it. Mm-hmm. it because it's not something that has all of a sudden made your faith illegal. Um uh, let me put you on the spot then. What do you think of John MacArthur's um, – he's doing exactly what you just said. He's he's saying, hey, we're going to buck the restrictions. And Well, John he, MacArthur has a mega church, okay? Yeah, yeah, sure. John mm-hmm. MacArthur has a mega church with a mega budget. And, <laughs> and if he gets fined, okay. fined $50,000 a day or whatever it is from the state of California – he can yeah. he can come up with that kind of money, suppose, yeah. but mm-hmm. if you are a small messianic congregation mm-hmm. of you don't have the funds of to, to take that risk or less, yeah, you know, you know one one incident and you're out of business out. as, as yeah. it are. You're gone. Yeah. You're taken yeah. out. So 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 it's a lot different. Uh, you know, John MacArthur, you know, is a very well known, popular voice. He could mm-hmm. raise the money if he gets sued. But yeah. you know, small messianic congregations. A lot of them Not don't so even much. have it. Have insurance. I know. Uh, yeah. So you know, mm-hmm. one 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 incident, one thing and, and they're, they're gone. gone. Yeah. Uh, so Understood. I think so it I may think, be unwise to follow MacArthur's example in the messianic movement. So people have to be targeted with what they do. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and again, it, you know, it's you know, I I do think that there spiritually is a larger agenda from the Lord at work here with coronavirus. I know we're getting off topic, Mm. uh, but I hope, but you know, the Lord is trying to wake us up that we do not have endless time. Now I don't think coronavirus is the thing that's going to result in the mark of the beast and us getting all tagged and everything else. Mm. Uh, If anything, it's, it's been like, you know, we've gone how long we haven't, you know, realistically and rationally discussed prophecy and, there are all these different issues we put off for another day. And, you know, we're in the year 2020 right now. I mean, we should be a little further down the road. And, mm. I mean, you discuss how, you know, we don't respect, you know, Christian scholarship the way we should. Um, we actually are not thinking as Jewishly as we should yeah, because okay. we'd be a lot further down the road. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that I see coming out of the coronavirus scare. Yeah, uh, but, yeah but God can use it for good. But, you know, nobody is, you know, when I read Revelation and it talks about the mark of the beast, yes, it talks about buying and selling, but it also involves worship of the beast. Mm-hmm. And in spite of all the conspiracies involving, you know, 
Microsoft and Apple and Google and Facebook and Twitter and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of them are forcing us to worship the beast. Yes, we, yes. we might think they have too much influence, but mm-hmm. uh, they're not going to force us down and be barcoded all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, and I can say that as someone who works for Microsoft, I, I assure folks that isn't coming from Microsoft, and I don't think from other big tech. You're right. We're not at that point. Thank God. Uh, should we tackle this last one, John? Yes, we should. All right, cool. Oh, and I just wanted to give a quick note about that previous one. I know MacArthur did address Romans 13 when he made his statement, and he basically, if I recall right, said, yes, Romans 13, but also consider Acts, where we must follow God rather than men, um, basically saying, look, you can't just take this one scripture. Uh, there are counterexamples in scripture. Okay, let's move on. Last one I want to discuss with you is eating and drinking and whether this applies to kosher. Uh, clearly the context, it doesn't. Here's, here's the context. So in Romans chapter 14, verse one, uh, he talks about, um, those who are eating this and then others who refrain from eating this other thing and how, uh, we need to have grace for both. And I wanted to talk about that in the context of kosher because Jonathan did raise, um, some surrounding points to this. Romans 14, verse one. Now accept the one who's weak in faith. Not for the purpose of disputes about, and, uh, but not for the purpose of disputes about opinions. One person has faith to eat anything, but the weak one only eats vegetables. Don't let the one who eats disparage the one who doesn't eat. And don't let the one who does, uh, who does not judge the one who eats. Let me read that again. And don't let the one who does not eat, judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. For who, are, who are you to judge another servant? Before his own master he stands or falls. Yes, he shall stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Um, so throughout Romans 14, he talks about um, this eating and drinking. And I think from the context, you know, he does mention in this particular case, perhaps vegetarians, people only eating vegetables. Um, but one could argue that this could also apply to to eating kosher, which is uh, obviously a, an issue in the messianic movement, a, a matter of dispute about who's following it and how far to go and rabbinic standards and all that. So my thought, I, I guess my question to you, John, is what do you think about this uh, Romans 14 in the context of kosher? Can that be applied today, even though it wasn't in the context originally? Could it be applied to kosher that, um, we shouldn't judge folks uh, over matters of eating and drinking. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I think we have two things going on here. Uh, okay. So I'm going to say number one to address the whole general issue. You mm-hmm. know, my faith does not rise or fall on the kosher dietary laws. Yeah, of course. In spite of the fact my that goodness. our ministry has a 670-page book on kosher, <laughs> uh, my my faith does not rise or fall on the dietary laws. Yes. And I mean, and I don't, you know, look down on people who are eating unclean things. Yes. Uh, recently, I heard about a family member who had, uh, messi- you know, messianic family member had a, a little mini crisis in his life, and he said, "Well, you know, I broke down and I I went and got some baby backs," and uh, my response to that was, "Well, 
at least it wasn't porn and at least mm. he didn't drink a case of scotch you know mm. so it was like <laughs> it could be worse you know, <laughs> so, okay mm. you know i i looked at it i looked at it that way yeah uh, so you know i and i and i have a i have a high view of the dietary laws for god's people but but this yeah. is not what my faith is centered around so agreed agreed uh, that's you know, I and, gonna, can i pause a second so that actually that's really important to say because i think a lot of folks in the messianic movement uh, it does revolve around kosher where it's such a huge issue that if you're not eating kosher, you're seen as part of an out group. Now you're not us, you're, you're them. Uh, so I think it's important that we, we encourage uh, the listeners here to say, look, this is a, this is not one of the weighty matters of the Torah. This is not, um, this is not, a, of course, it's not a salvation issue, but it's not even one of the weighty matters of the Torah and our faith um, does not rely on eating and drinking. And I think that's maybe one area where Hebrew Roots has gone perhaps too far, has amplified that minor issue into a major one. Yeah, and I have, um, I don't want to get into some, you know, another rabbit trail, but uh, as it involves, you know, the, the kosher, you know, dietary laws, there are no capital penalties associated with violation of the kosher dietary laws. Mm. If you actually want to get into capital penalties, why don't we discuss the Sabbath, Shabbat? There are capital penalties associated with that. Indeed. Um, and you know, and I've had conflicts with people over kosher, you know, in my time, like, Mm -hmm. well, what if I accidentally get served something at some event or Mm -hmm. like this has happened to me more than a few times? Well, the pepperoni was hidden under the cheese. I didn't see it. I didn't know. That's a weak <laughs> argument, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's happened before. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, I I leave people a lot of leeway on this, but right. as it specifically concerns Romans fourteen, mm-hmm. yes, I think the customary application of Romans fourteen that we've all been subjected to, and it appears in a lot of study Bibles out there, even though it really shouldn't. Uh, it's that you know this is just Paul's abstract essay. Uh, and he uses eating and sacred days as it really doesn't matter. Some people eat, some people don't. Some people do this mm-hmm. day, some people do that day. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and so then it gets extrapolated to, you know, it doesn't matter if you drink alcohol or smoke tobacco or dance or play cards or watch R-rated movies. Mm. And it and it becomes this abstract essay. Ah, uh, uh, interesting. Whereas mm. one's orientation on Romans chapter fourteen should shift when we recognize this instruction came out of some kind of a problem that the Roman believers were having. We're dealing with it. Now, what was that problem? Uh, yeah, you know, I remember when I was conducting that lengthy Roman study back in uh, twenty fourteen. Uh, that you know, looking at a number of commentaries. Scholars like uh, C.E.B. Cranfield and N.T. Wright yeah. said, you know, a lot of people think they confidently know what is taking place in chapter 14. Well, we really don't confidently know. We have to be mm. you know, very tempered in coming to different conclusions. Mm-hmm. So that at least rec- so that should at least cause readers to recognize. Don't rush off to conclusions here. You yeah. know, stick okay. with the text and what could have organically come out of the Roman believers where people were unnecessarily criticizing one another for eating or not eating certain things in different sacred days or, or what have you. Hmm. And actually a very plausible scenario. And this is when you get into Romans chapter 16, you see all these different greetings. Uh, 
that's a chapter that, that everybody skips over, like, oh, it's just not important. But yeah. actually, it provides significant clues for us understanding the Roman believers. Okay. Because you see, you know, greet this person, greet that person, tell them I'm doing well, all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, many of the people listed were probably leaders of different home fellowships, plural, within mm. the, with, among the believers in Rome. Cause Rome's a huge city. In yeah. The has, yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, yeah. this idea that they're all constrained to one particular, you know, home fellowship is, is not sustainable. You know, if we see. can recognize. Yeah. We can recognize that there are multiple synagogues in Rome. Well, Mm -hmm. there are probably multiple groups of Roman believers. And some of them had different ideas about eating and sacred days, whatever Mm -hmm. that was. Mm -hmm. So what would happen when some of these groups got together for larger gatherings? Mm, And they would have, and they would have a fellowship meal. Mm. It's entirely plausible that, you know, certain people had a much more conservative or rigid view of eating than others did. Yes. Now, I happen to believe that, you know, Romans 14, uh, let me get down to this, uh, trying to find the verse here. Anyway, I happen to be of the position that in Romans chapter 14, everybody is observing the apostolic decree of Acts 15, meaning okay. that there is, so whatever meat is being served at, at these large fellowship meals, it's not strangled. So it is mm. something that is technically would be, technically would be considered clean. Uh, mm-hmm. And indeed here mm-hmm. in uh, Romans chapter uh, 14, verse 20, uh, Paul says, all things are indeed clean. And I take that as a, as, as the, uh, from the perspective that everything that was served at a cross fellowship meal was technically clean. But of course, that doesn't all of a sudden mean that everybody's going to eat whatever meat was being served. And so there Interesting. were, so there yeah. were probably questions. Well, where did this stuff come from? And some Romans commentators have proposed that because of the Jewish expulsion from Rome during the time of Claudius, yes. that the Jewish butcher shops would not sell meat to the believers. And so if, it, if the believers wanted to procure meat, they would have got had to get it from the Roman marketplace. Oh, and so, interesting. And so wow. that's where okay. these, this question of Romans 14, 14, where you see the Greek koinos, which is Common. a different word than akathartos, which means unclean. Akathartos in the Septuagint translates the Hebrew tame. Uh, koinos actually means common. Uh, yes. I know I'm convinced in the Lord Yeshua that nothing is common in itself, meaning that it's, a, it's an area of opinion, but to him who thinks it is common, it is, uh, to him it is common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That the meat being served while technically clean may not have been up to certain higher standards. And so it could have been regarded as well, you know, common. It's not quite accepted. Um, mm-hmm. And so those would have been the people who would have just eaten vegetables. So the, so the whole point is because the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. It's about love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. My take on Romans 14 is that there is a situation among these, you know, cross 
fellowship meals, all these different groups in Rome, they get together, they have prayer, they've got worship, teaching, and then they eat a meal together. There's there's meat and vegetables being served. It's common meat, but technically clean meat. People who are eating the meat and the vegetables unnecessarily criticize the people who are only eating the vegetables. And Paul's argument is, you know, why are you doing this? You know, this is this is this mm-hmm. is unnecessary. And then his argument then shifts uh, regard to discussing sacred days. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. And the frequent alternative to the sacred days being like Shabbat and the appointed times is that it's speaking of optional days of fasting. Oh, and, interesting. Hmm. Right, and actually... Hmm. um John Chrysostom, of all people, from the fourth yeah. century, used this 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 uh, passage of scripture to talk about optional days of fasting for believers. John Chrysostom, the great irony being, he was vehemently anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish. Yeah, but yeah. so yeah. this is not off the map of possibilities here. Fasting, so rhetorically, hmm. so rhetorically, why, you're going after people who are only eating vegetables, but. You wouldn't go after them if they would fast on certain days, would would you? Because what would be some of the optional fast days? Well, things like remembering the destruction of the temple, the ninth of Av, these kinds of things, mm-hmm. where terrible events have occurred in the history of Israel. Nobody's going to go criticize somebody for for remembering these days. I mean, maybe you don't do it yourself, but uh, if you don't go after people for fasting in remembrance of the destruction of the temple, why would you criticize them for what they eat or don't eat? I mean, that this is my mm. view of Romans 14. And yeah. I think it's rooted not only within the text, but it's rooted within a plausible circumstance that would have arisen Historical, when yep. these groups of diverse opinions came together for a common meal. And and actually, we have the same things take place, well, maybe not now in the, in the coronavirus world, but uh, during Oneg time, there are people yeah. who, well, where'd you get that from? Mm-hmm. Or where did, where did this product originate? And, mm. you know, I myself have been privy yeah. to different congregational discussions and debates on what gets served during Oneg. How rigid or how loose are we going to be? And yep. you know, I've been at congregations where it's like, well, we just follow biblically kosher, just no pork or no shellfish, and all of a sudden sure. people start showing up with you know buckets of KFC. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've seen that. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then I've seen, you know, well, for the congregation, and we're trying to have outreach to the Jewish community. We have a parv table, so it's fish, and uh, uh. you know, and it's you know. That's the way around the whole, where did the meat originate? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was actually part of the faction like, well, maybe we need, because, you know, we're members of the MJAA, maybe we need to just serve, you know, maybe we need to be on parody what served in the cafeteria at the Messiah conference. Mm, uh, sure. So there's this fight. <laughs> okay. So there's this fight regarding, you know, Parv. And it's like, hey, you know, my faith doesn't rise or fall, but you're having this level of kosher for these fantasy Orthodox who are mm. never going to show up because the congregation's meeting at a church anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, mm. So let's just be on parity with what, uh, so, you know, yep. there are applications of 
Romans 14, but I think we have to get the issue figured out before we start applying it. And unfortunately, you know, that, that the common Romans interpretation of this is an abstract essay rather than an actual letter addressing first century circumstances dominates way too much of, of common thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Appreciate the, the answer there. Actually, a lot of that's illuminating, especially around the fasting days. That's good. So John, uh, before we wrap up, I do have a, a, a quick mystery question for you. Oh crap. Uh, <laughs> a lot of these questions and disputes and sometimes maybe misinterpretations arise from taking Paul's words that were contextual and perhaps more narrow and kind of broadening them out to a, a global application in circumstances that perhaps Paul himself didn't intend to apply them to this Romans 14 being a good, good example. Um, you know, maybe he, he didn't intend it to, to speak of, of kosher specifically. My question is how do we one apply it to today, but without getting off on these, these erroneous tangents where we over apply Paul's context to maybe a more general situation? How do we, we avoid some of these errors? We, we, we do believe all scriptures breathed by God and is useful for instruction. I just wonder if so many of these errors, some of the things that we've addressed today arise from applying them to circumstances that Paul didn't apply them to, how can we avoid that error? That's my question. Well, whether it's Romans 14 or some other issue, that's what theology is all about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the big questions of theology is, okay, you know, we have certain convictions, we have certain beliefs, but are they coming from the right texts? Like there, there are some, you know, fiercely debated texts within today's messianic movement okay. uh, that uh, involve different uh, translation issues, uh, and they're Pauline texts from the Greek source text into English, certain background issues, and certain perspective issues. Mm -hmm. And so, some people, I know for a fact, haven't looked at any of those things. Yes, they're just okay. looking Fair at enough. an English translation, and they're just What's reading yep. their viewpoint into the text. And mm -hmm. I know that you know somebody like me who is a little more engaged with a, a, a history of interpretation. Well, mm -hmm. are you aware that your interpretation is just one stone throw away from other people who have used that kind of viewpoint to oppress other groups of people or keep mm. people down or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, keep people silent or censored, which is not something that we want. Yeah. So I think part of it is, you know, what is the history of interpretation of these different passages? And, you know, mind you, you know, a lot of good things came out of the Protestant Reformation, but then a lot of other things came because different reformers equated medieval Catholicism with Second Temple Judaism, which was not good, as though the mm. two were exactly the same, which mm. they weren't. So I think some of it definitely comes from what is the history of interpretation of this particular passage and what has come from this history of interpretation. And frequently, you know, experience is a very harsh teacher so many of us have come to different conclusions because you're like, okay, I've seen the inter that interpretation of that passage 
oppress people or keep people down or even I got put in my proverbial quote-unquote place, and I'm not going to allow that to happen again. Mm. Uh, so we need to, to completely you know, reevaluate our perspective on you know, that particular issue. And like, like one of the big debates in theology is, you know, it's over, you know, Genesis one to 11 perspectives. And my, uh, my brother-in-law have a lot, we have discussions about this because he reads a lot of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Ah, Uh, sure. You know, he's got a big giant telescope and everything else. And, and, uh, you know, he likes to show off these, these toys that he's got. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my view is, look, Genesis 1 to 11 meant something to the ancient Israelites at Mount Sinai for certain. They yeah. were asking very important questions regarding their dignity as people and what these accounts mm. meant versus some of the other creation accounts in, you know, Mesopotamia or Egypt or, or, or sure. Canaan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't asking questions like, you know, the speed of light or, uh, mm-hmm. uh you know, carbon 14 or, or, you know, zoology. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't asking things, any yeah. of those questions They we are Indeed. asking. Yeah. Pretty scientific. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have to understand, you know, what did these texts mean for ancient Israel? And then once we, once we have sufficiently addressed them, okay, these ancient texts regarding how we got here, has God embedded some kind of scientific information in them? And in some of the ambiguities of Hebrew, that's where they can be found as we mm. look out there at the final frontier and a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, that, 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 that's, that's, that's theology for you. Yeah. You know, and, and how, and what things do we have to reevaluate regarding what we might just be reading in English? So with, 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 you know, bringing it back to Romans 14, you know, there are things that, you know, in a, in a common English translation, immediately gets shaken up when, what do you mean koinos doesn't mean unclean in Romans 14, 14? It means common. Yeah, it's something yeah. different. Yeah. And, you know, what do you mean? This isn't telling me about whether or not I can, you know, smoke cigarettes or drink mm. beer or, mm. you know, watch, you know, basic instinct, you know, something, you know, that, mm-hmm. something like that. No, it's it's talking about some, something involving eating and sacred days that arose from the Roman believers mm-hmm. and, and they were disputable matters that yes. any opinion is okay. And, and, and it's, and it's to right. Re- and it's it to help people recognize that there are things that we don't have to agree 100% about as God's people. Uh, if you want to wear a red shirt, fine. If you want to wear a blue shirt, fine. You know, you want to wear shorts, fine. You want to wear pants, fine. You know, I mean, there there are things we can allow disagree for on. It's different fine. points of view on. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've talked in in some previous episodes that the messianic movement may well be too rigid, especially in certain areas. Uh, Genesis being one of them. Um, so it is an area. You know, that, if you want to dye your hair, fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes. Well, good. John, this has been a great discussion of Romans. Uh, for me, it really has been helpful, um, and I hope it's been helpful to our listeners as well. Well, it's always fascinating to see just from these, you know, short five or six points mm-hmm. where the discussion goes. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, I, yeah. I think that for a lot of Messianic people, these are the kinds of discussions that have been lacking. 
uh, you know, you know, the, the, the Holy Scriptures are so vital for us as we, however short or long the final stretch of history is. And, and it's, and it is kind of interesting to see where, you know, one topic leads to another and leads to another. And I hope for those who are watching or listening to this, they can appreciate how we are trying to be guided by the Lord's Spirit mm-hmm. addressing these topics. And, and we're very yes. open to, you know, what do we need to discuss next? You know, the conversation is ongoing. It never ends. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so we don't know where the next episode will take us, but um, uh, we've had some inklings. But like John said, maybe uh, at the prompting of the Lord, we'll we'll see what what comes up next. But um, yeah, I think it's good. Look, whatever we do, if we're digging into the scriptures, we're trying to better understand uh, what the Lord wants from us in our lives. I think um, I think that's a good direction. Um, we won't always have the right answer. Sometimes we'll 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 go astray, but. I think if we keep digging, I think that's uh, pleasing to the Lord. And so that's one of the reasons I, I really enjoy uh, discussing the scriptures with you, John, and, and just on this podcast uh, with everyone. So. Well, certainly it's my pleasure. I, I yeah. definitely uh, look forward to uh, you know having these you know bi-weekly uh, episodes and, and, and yeah. us talking about the, these, these vitally important issues for uh, our faith today. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Uh, to close, I just wanted to say to everyone, uh, from my end, I'll give you a chance to close too, John, but, um, happy Sukkot to everyone. I hope, hope you're enjoying Sukkot. Um, I, I went all out this year and, and made a really beautiful sukkah. I, I'm going to share some photos on, on my Facebook page, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's a great time to reflect back on what the Lord has done to, to free uh, Israel from slavery. Um, I think it's a time to look forward to what the Lord will do. I was talking to my kids about this, uh, that, you know, in Revelation, it says that God will dwell among men. And I think there's some symbolism of Sukkot, uh, God tabernacling with his people. Um, and so I, I think it's an awesome time to just reflect on what God's done and look ahead to what the Lord will do. Uh, hopefully, hopefully soon, especially with all the troubles we've been going through this year. But um, it's, a, it's a wonderful, holy time of the Lord, and I hope uh, the listeners are, are taking that time to reflect on what God's done. Amen to that. And, and indeed, I certainly would like to wish all of you a Hag Sameach uh, and, and a very blessed uh, fall high holiday season. Uh, this is a time when I think all of us have reflected back on the past year, uh, a lot of things happened in the past year that we could never have anticipated. Uh, there's still a lot of things to take place this year, which are actually quite concerning and even fearful. Uh, mm. We are in the middle of a, of a United States presidential election, election. and know. we have no idea uh, what is going to come from that. But regardless of what happens or doesn't happen, God is still sitting on the throne. That's He's right. still That's in raining. control yeah. of the I'm universe. In. Uh, but I think this year he's trying to get our attention in a very unique and distinct way. And hopefully yes. with our Messianic Walk show, we are able to help uh, all of us as uh, Messianic people with the issues that, that really matter to us. Uh, and I know that I definitely pay attention to what people are talking about, what people are saying. And we can't address everything all at once, but we can see that things are addressed 
uh, properly and reasonably. Yeah. So with that said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're uh, uh, thankful for those of you who uh, take the time to watch or listen to uh, the Messianic Walk. Once again, uh, you can access MessianicWalk.com. That's right, yeah. podcast. And, of course, uh, Judah has his Kineti Letzion blog at blog.judagabriel.com. And you can access my website, Messianic Apologetics, at messianicapologetics.net. Until next time, shalom. May God bless you. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach, everyone. Shalom. Definitely keep the faith. Amen.